The title for tonight's talk is Loneliness as a Teacher. And you may well ask, am I making a pitch for loneliness? Am I, am I encouraging you to become lonely so that you can learn from it? But not really, but <laughs> inevitably there will be times when we do feel lonely and when we get into one of those places, then instead of running away from it, how about appreciating it as an opportunity to learn? So we could start by inquiring, where does this feeling of loneliness come? What conditions it? For myself, it's my sense that uh, if we look carefully enough, we find that loneliness stems largely from the assumption that love and friendship are in short supply, that they are scarce, difficult to get. We do take that scarcity as a given. And when we do that, we feel that we have to do our best in order to engage our friends. If we don't have friends, it's because there's something wrong with us, because we don't have the ability to attract friends. It means that we must try harder. It means that we have to discover ways of, of making friends. I remember I was in college. There was this book that at the time was famous, perhaps is totally unknown today, is by one Dale Carnegie. How to win friends and influence people or something like that. Boy, that was a bestseller, you know. I can't remember where I read it, man. I must have read it. So, we develop strategies to gain friends. And then, since it doesn't always work anyway, we also develop additional strategies to avoid getting hurt when we can't get the friends. All this is based very much on conversation. Surely, I mean, you must look nice and, you know, have a good haircut and, and all the facial characteristics and so on. And, but conversation becomes a major tool. 
tool for making ourselves interesting. Hey, what an interesting person. And also, at times, a tool for not making ourselves too available so that we might get hurt if the thing doesn't work as expected. It's a whole complicated strategy. And, and most of us are pretty good at this, you know, if you want to. Now, when we come to a retreat like this, there's a problem. Because as the teacher saying, you shouldn't be talking, you know. And, and yet the, all this non-verbal episodes of communication, but we cannot organize them in the way that language has strategized to do this. So, we do fall back on the default setting of scarcity so easily. And we do, at times, feel very lonely. This is a short retreat, perhaps in two days. There isn't that much of a chance for that. I do remember my first uh, month-long retreat at Gaia House many years ago. I feel so desperately cut off from everybody. I had a lot to do with this, you know. Not talking. Which, uh, and so, how do I, why do, do I connect? Conversation, of course, makes only a semblance of connectivity. Sure. But we can settle for it. There are some people who who really get a hold of bits of the conversations in their lives and almost freeze them um, keep them in a freezer. <laughs> I have one man in mind who's a good friend of Raquel from Cordoba, Argentina. Who He can remember, or could remember anyway, when I was close to him, a conversation that he had 20 years ago with so-and-so. He said that, and I said that, and um, And, yeah, for him, that, that was a strategy. Not just to connect, but also to freeze the connection. Now, given that strategy, as you might imagine, he doesn't have many or hardly any friends left. He's really very disconnected from people. He's, uh, about my age, a little older than me, I think. And still lives in Cordoba all by himself. But had one one friend. One friend left. 
actually somebody who moved to Buenos Aires, 400, this is Argentina, right? 400 miles away. So that um, friend continued to be his friend, but uh, it was a friendship that wasn't challenged at all, of course, throughout those years. Very recently, he learned that this best friend of his was dying. And so he decided to make the trip from Cordoba to Buenos Aires, something that he, he doesn't, he hardly ever does. It's very difficult for him to do. He went from Cordoba to Buenos Aires, got to his friend's apartment. And there was his friend's wife, who received him, uh, received him, and she explained to the man from Cordoba that his friend was in very bad shape. Wasn't recognizing, I don't know the details of that, but was in very bad shape. And you know what? The man from Cordoba left without seeing his friend who was in the room next door. He didn't want to take a chance that the connection that he had imagined he had with this person could be blemished by this last encounter. So, so much for some of the contacts we make with others. No wonder we end up being so lonely. Because contacts so very often are based on affection, are based on an identity that we create for ourselves and for the other. And they don't stand up the reality of things. So we work so hard at retaining that identity, at preserving that identity. We do that towards others, but we do that so much towards ourselves. So much towards ourselves. With ourselves too, there's a tendency to rely our connection with ourselves for our connection with ourselves on this inner dialogue, inner conversation that we carry on and on and on. Relentlessly, compulsively, to confirm who we are, leaving no space for the unexpected, heaven forbid, to emerge. Uh, this running commentary, of course, does tend to support some sense of some strategy for safety, or apparent safety. But in doing that, we preclude any intimacy with ourselves. 
just as when we do it with others, we preclude any true intimacy with the others. We highlight the chosen identity, but we relinquish the richness of who we really are. So let let me reiterate this, because I, I, I think it's a very important central point. What we do to others, and we, we do to ourselves, are based on the same type of strategy. This, the, the basic trick here is to contrive an identity. Identity by which I present myself to others. Identity by which I categorize the other. Like the man from Cordova who couldn't take a chance on that identity being blemished in any way. And when we focused on an identity which is so limited, then we preclude any connection with the vastness of who we really are. Ah. We alienate ourselves from the vastness of who I am and who the other person is. And it's this alienation that makes us so wretchedly lonely. When we things haven't worked for us so well, do we really question the basis of the strategy? Rarely. More often than not, we either look for another friend or for another identity. Okay, I got the identity wrong. Okay, okay, okay. But get a new one. Or another identity for myself. I thought I was this, but I was that. Okay, I I am that now. But this is not opening up to the reality of things. The reality of things requires including the whole of who of who each one of us is. Including all the complexities of our rich and precious life. And this is very much what we come to examine in situations like this. In retreats like this. And hopefully this retreat retreat provides a, an appropriate setting for that. To begin this the silence. And I hope I don't talk too much. Tell me if I do. Let me know. Leave me a note. <laughs> and, and so, as there's an opening 
where we can examine the things that we don't usually look at, then there is an opportunity to pay attention to areas that are neglected. For that we need a, a mind that's focused and calm. And of course, we all contribute to that. As uh, I remind everybody in retreats like this, there's some very simple precepts, guidelines, that help us uh, create uh, this uh, kind of setting for us. And uh, they're known as the five basic precepts. And they go like this. No killing, no extinguishing any, any life, which of course refers primarily to, say, bugs or whatever little creatures may creep in. And... Uh, if we cultivate respect to them, it's a gesture of respect to all living beings, which is so much part of respecting the other. So it's a cultivation of a, an attitude of mind. And along similar lines, not taking what is not freely given, that is to respect things that others may see as theirs and uh, uh, fair enough, why not? No speaking, no speech. I've talked about that, that's very clear. And uh, just just to emphasize, it's not that there's anything wrong with speech per se, of course. We can use it very well and, and very skillfully, too. Simply that under these circumstances, it's best to reduce the level of speech to the minimum. The fourth um, precept, no sexual activity. And once again, is not that this absolutely anything wrong with sexual activity. Simply, this is not the place for that during the weekend. And finally, no intoxicants. Fair enough. You know, I do drink a glass of wine here and there, not again saying anything wrong with that, intrinsically. But... Um, Everybody should know how and when and what. And in those circumstances, it's much better to be free of any stimulants of that sort. So, these are the five factors, major factors, that contribute to create a proper setting for our inner work. Inner work to develop inclusiveness within ourselves and inclusiveness in our relationship to the world. By inclusiveness I mean rather than narrowing down our identity,
just being present with all that manifests, all that plays out. Inner work, of course, means that we basically, as we do with the breath, that we bring the mind to be attentive to whatever emerges, whatever is happening, whatever comes our way at each moment. So, we, we initially, we uh, do that with the breath, and that's a very rich area of experience, and, and then we become capable of letting the, bri- the mind see whatever is happening, just as it see, it, just as it's willing to look at the breath and see what's going on there, rather than judging it, rather than having opinions about it, rather than trying to improve it, whatever, just be with what is. And then, hopefully, we can bring that attitude to all areas of mental activity. And then the mind becomes open and receptive. Not, definitely not, that we develop greater receptivity to our habitual tapes. We need to distinguish between the habitual tapes, or rather CDs nowadays, whatever, that run in our mind, (laughs) telling ourselves compulsively, this is this, this is that, you shouldn't have done that, she's full of whatever, you know, etc. Just just being open to the reality of things, not to the tapes, to the reruns. So that instead of focusing on our obsessions, we can open up to the complexity of being a human being. This is complex, this is beautiful, but it's complicated. If you have any doubt, ask Raquel. She has to live with me. (laughs) So a retreat creates a safe environment in which to examine openly all areas of our life that uh, present themselves to us. And so we begin to learn to be present, whether in retreat or outside of retreat, with the truth of things. In all the complexity of it, both inside ourselves and outside ourselves. So, as we look inside ourselves, just as uh, watching the breath. We may notice, hey, I'm judging the breath there. But at least we notice, not just the breath, that we are judging the breath. 
or that we when we decide that it is so boring but but we have the space to see ourselves deciding that doing this is so boring that's a big learning there too because we discover that there's a a choice between being with the experience or dismissing it. Habitual thing is to dismiss experiences and go to the tapes or CDs, whatever of the mind. In the practice, we create enough space to at least at times just be with experience. Whatever the experience is, experience may be as simple as being with the breath, or, or listening to the sounds of the heating system, probably will have some of that uh, yeah, sometime in the next couple of days. <laughs> and, and just being with that, present with that. Instead of being with the pursuit of preferences. Oh, yes. The heating starts making these knocking sounds. And suddenly we are obsessed by our preference for silence. Just just to recognize how this limits who we are. Limits our experience. It, it makes whole aspects of who we are fall by the wayside, as, as they've always done, you know. We tell ourselves, uh, well, I don't hear that too often nowadays, but I used to very much, grow up, you know, at your age. <laughs> My age is hopeless now, but there's uh, <laughs> some freedom there. <laughs> And, and if, if we do follow those injunctions that come from outside or come from inside, we're going to chuck out a good deal of us. What you can call the child within, the, the young, the playful. We tell ourselves, perhaps not as bluntly as I can put it, Act your gender. You know, if you're a man, be a man. If you're a woman, be a woman. Yeah, we do that. Yeah, be a man. Yeah. See that to ourselves. Or to others. Often enough. As, as if what we have to do is chuck out the men, have to chuck out the feminine in them. Or the women have to chuck out the masculine in them. It's ridiculous. But we keep doing it because we, we, we keep thinking that if we have the right identity, everything will be okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we should not be what we are. On the contrary, it's very beautiful. We are what we are, which includes a combination of aspects of both genders. 
one prevails or the other prevails. But what a loss if we start chucking out the part that doesn't fit. And, and it's very beautiful. In, in, a, in a couple, when there's complementarity, maybe around gender, it doesn't have to be around gender, but there's a very common complementarity. Of course it's beautiful. Of course it's nice. But it's there because it's there, not because we've decided that I'm the man and she's the woman, or vice versa. And so, with every aspect of identity, I could go on and on, but one, one last one, nationality. Now it's very much in the political forefront, you know. If you're American, you should speak English. <coughs> oh, I mean, it's fair enough, it's beautiful to speak English, but uh, nothing wrong with speaking other languages, if that's what feels right. It's not just only happening in America and France too. France is even worse than that. Worse. Much worse. So no no wonder we feel so lonely if we sort of limit ourselves to to a certain identity that we pick. And identities that we pick for others. How can we how can we really connect? So and yes, in in our experience sometimes there is a deep sense of loneliness. Not to chuck that out either, please, don't misread those remarks. When loneliness is the experience, that's experience. What, what we can do, perhaps, if it's appropriate, is, is change the description, because loneliness implies, at least in our culture, a judgment. Is wrong. Call it aloneness if you wish. Or call it loneliness without judgment. No problem. Feeling that, that's very appropriate. When it feels and when it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel. And, and of course it may be appropriate too to take some steps, A, B, C, whatever, to change that. Absolutely. I'm not saying that we freeze in this other identity. I'm alone. (laughs) Not freezing in any identity. Just exploring all the aspects of ourselves that reveal themselves to us. Exploring all the aspects in our friends that reveal themselves to us. And be very clear not to judge them. If it's a painful aspect, uh, feel compassion, of course. 
for the other or for oneself? Of course. Sure. The, this exploration of, uh, of richness and, diver- and diversity within ourselves and others uh, plays out to me very beautiful in the periods for inquiry that we set out in this uh, retreat, in retreats like this, and the groups too. Uh, but the inquiry is a little more intense because many of us, the whole group is present there, and it's so remarkable, as I've said many times, and I'll say it again, it's so remarkable how the voice of one person seems to give voice to many others in the room. At times, a person speaks, and in that person speaking, we, I, recognize something in myself that, oh wow, yeah, I've forgotten. Yes, of course. It feels so right. And so that person speaks for me. So that the, the richness of, that's inside each one of us plays out in the room. Oh, yes, and sometimes uh, you know, what the person says is not very brilliant. And I say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I could be just as stupid as that person, sure. But without the weight of uh, judgment, just, uh, just in a humorous way. So this is uh, how this plays out within ourselves and with others. <coughs> and of course we have uh, a couple of days now to check it out. In closing, let me spend a little time highlighting the importance of the unconditionality of our relationship with ourselves. I mean, that's very important, unconditionality. In other words, it means I'm going to love myself, I'm going to be close to myself, no matter how the stupidities I say. I mean, maybe tonight's talk wasn't, didn't amount to very much. Maybe it did, I don't know. But suppose it didn't. Suppose I feel, feel that it felt flat within myself. Still, that's what happened. Can I be totally friendly with myself I mean, it's easy to be friendly with oneself when one is successful and everything goes well and on, and everybody wants you, and uh, etc. But when things don't work, still, unconditional friendship. 
in in the Buddhist law, there's a word Maitri. I don't know how to pronounce it properly, so I just pronounce it my way. Maitri means just that. Unconditional friendship with ourselves. And uh, I'd like to read a few things that Pema Chodron says about that. Pema Chodron, perhaps you know, is a, a Tibetan teacher. I mean, she's not Tibetan, she's American, but she's in the Tibetan tradition and, and teaches in Nova Scotia in Canada. Among other places, of course. She teaches at Omega too. But she resides there. She says, Some people find the teachings I offer helpful because I encourage them to be kind to themselves. But that does not mean pampering our neurosis. The kindness that I learned from my teachers and that I wish so much to convey to other people is kindness towards all qualities of our being. The qualities that are the toughest to be kind to are the painful parts, where we feel ashamed, as if we don't belong, as if we just blown it. Maitri means sticking with ourselves when we don't have anything, when we feel like a loser. And it becomes a basis for extending the same unconditional friendliness to others. If there are whole parts of yourself that you are always running from, that you even feel justified in running from, then you're going to run from anything that brings you into contact with your feelings of insecurity. And have you noticed how often these parts of ourselves get touched? The closer you get to a situation or a person, the more these feelings arise. Often, when you're in a relationship, it starts off great. But it, when it gets intimate and begins to bring out your neurosis, you just want to get out of there as fast as you can. So I'm here to tell you that the path to peace is right there when you want to get away. You can cruise through life not letting, not letting anything touch you. But if you really want to live fully, if you want to enter into life, enter into genuine relationships with other people, with animals, and with the world situation, then you're definitely going to have to experience the experience of feeling provoked, of getting hooked. You're not just going to feel bliss. The message is that when those feelings emerge, this is not a failure. This is a chance to cultivate Maitri, unconditional friendliness towards your perfect and imperfect self.
And so, to repeat, as Pema says, unconditional friendly, friendliness to ourselves becomes a basis for unconditional friendliness to other. And on that basis, how could we truly be lonely? Alone? Sure. But not cut off from others or from ourselves. Just sit for a moment.